Welcome everyone to week one of Civics, Government, and Activism, presented by Voters of Tomorrow. Now, this is going to be a weekly course on those three topics in the title. So before we start, I want to take a look at what this course is actually going to be studied. What do we mean when we say civics, government, and activism? They're three different but related concepts. First, we have civics. Civics can broadly be understood to be the study of citizenship. This means, what does it mean to be a member of our nation? This is an especially interesting question today in a country where many people, by legal status, we would not consider citizens, but by the roles that they perform, we absolutely consider citizens. For example, think of a library. Some employees are paid librarians, and some simply come to volunteer. Yet we still consider both to be actively working on and vital to the library. Citizenship, similarly, is not something that can be reduced only to its legal component, but rather the way that our duty to our country plays out in a variety of ways. Second, we have government. Government for this course can be understood to be the mechanisms of how our country's legal system works. How do laws pass? How do laws work? How do elections work? These types of questions will be addressed all throughout the semester in the content that we approach, because understanding the processes and offices that are actually in charge in our country are very important to being able to access the other concepts that we're going to want to be looking at. And lastly, we have activism. So if we know that civics has to do with our duty to our nation, and we know that government is the way that that nation operates itself, then activism is the application of our duty to the government. It is the way in which we are able to engage with the system of government that we have here. We also know that civics is about understanding what we ought to do as citizens, not only what we actually do. And government is about understanding how we can do it, the rules of the game, if you will. Activism is the process of using those actions to achieve our own civic duty. So that's going to be what we're going to be talking about through this semester. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Shandor Eric Larange, and I'll be your instructor for this course. I am a senior at Fordham University in New York City. I am majoring in political science with a minor in women, gender, and sexuality studies, and I am pursuing a master's degree in elections and campaign management also here at Fordham University. I've taught in high schools specifically with civics before via the Generation Citizen program, and I also serve as the National Political Director for Voters of Tomorrow, a civic engagement nonprofit focused on Gen Z. So you'll be hearing updates from our initiatives from there periodically too. And to engage more with the activities that we'll be doing in this course, you can join the Voters of Tomorrow Discord to interact with other students from around the country in these activism activities. So now let's talk about how this course actually is set up. This semester, we're going to be moving through four modules the U.S. Congress, the Supreme Court, the Presidency and the Executive Branch, and federal agencies. Each of these will last four weeks. As we move through each module, we're going to approach it step by step. For each one, week one will be concept introduction. Week two, we'll be looking at historical examples. Week three, we will be looking at examples from today. And week four, we will be applying all of that to activism specifically. So 
through the weeks, we're going to use three key terms in order to help you build your knowledge from a very basic place that we're going to start with today to by the end, you should have a really good understanding of how these systems actually work. One of the goals of this class is not necessarily content memorization in terms of dates or specific pieces of legislation, but rather if someone were to ask you how these things work, that you would be able to comfortably, confidently, and correctly explain it to someone else. So the three terms that we're going to be using to help build from our beginning point to where we want to be is what's this, who's involved, and how does it work? These are going to be our guiding questions because we're going to build up from that very basic place and we're going to tap into the knowledge that you already have. So we're going to be talking a lot about things you might have seen on social media, things you might have heard in the news, and how we can take the things that we kind of know and the things that we see in other places and actually use those to strengthen our knowledge in academic subjects. So without further ado, let's jump in to our first module, first week, U.S. Congress. So what's this? Very simply put, the mantra that we are going to be building on this month is Congress is the legislative branch of the U.S. government and is responsible for making laws and controlling the budget. So I'm going to repeat that one more time because we're going to be working with it. Congress is the legislative branch of the U.S. government and is responsible for making laws and controlling the budget. This is a federal branch of the United States government, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But know that the concepts that we are discussing are accessible at a number of levels of government. So we have the U.S. Congress at the federal level, but your state also has some sort of representative body. It looks a little bit different state to state, but it generally follows the same patterns that we're going to be discussing today. So know that while not everything that we're saying is going to be a one-to-one -one translation from the federal level to the state, the broad ideas of how these systems work are fairly consistent in U.S. governments. So now let's talk about who's involved. Let's think about who we know of as being part of Congress. Oftentimes, when we say Congress, we are not really referring to the actual entity of Congress, but rather to the government generally. For example, when the pandemic began and they were looking at relief packages, people kept saying, oh, Congress has a new plan or Congress has passed part of the relief package. But in reality, that was only one piece of the puzzle. It was a variety of different agencies and factions of the government that were all involved in the relief planning. Congress is simply a shorthand that we often use to refer to the federal government as a whole. But in reality, Congress is only one specific part of that government. So who are we talking about when we're actually talking about who is in Congress? I want you to think of some of the names of politicians that you see when you're scrolling on social media, watching the news, or wherever else you're receiving information, and names that you hear relative to politics. So first, we're going to go through people who actually are in Congress, just a couple of examples to help you get that idea. And then I'm going to go through and say some people who are not in Congress, people who are in other parts of the government. So that way we can start to hone in who we are talking about and who we are not. So some Congress people that you might be familiar with include the Speaker of the House. That is a position in Congress. Uh, currently, it is Nancy Pelosi. She is a congresswoman elected from the state of California. There were also a number of senators who were running for president earlier this year, and those are all members of the U.S. Congress, too. So some examples 
on the Democratic side include Senators Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris. And on the Republican side, in past election cycles that you might be familiar with, there was Senator Mitt Romney and Senator Ted Cruz. So those are people who occupy one house of the U.S. Congress. People who we have representing the other house of the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives, include people like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Katie Porter, and Representative Devin Nunez. So keep in mind that those titles, senator and congressperson, refer to the majority of people who are in Congress. We also have a couple of special titles, like the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House, but they're still at their core, Congress people and senators. They just serve a little bit different role there. So now that we know that we have our two kind of terms that are the people we're talking about, let's just clear out some people that we're not talking about. People whose title is secretary, for example, Secretary DeVos, they are not in Congress. They're in the executive branch, which we're going to be talking about in module three. People who have the title of justice or judge are also not in the United States Congress. They're in the judicial branch, which we're going to be talking about in module two. Lastly, people who have other types of business style titles, for example, Director Ray of the FBI, they are also not part of the U.S. Congress. So really, it's a very specific set of people that we're looking at. It is 535 people, 100 senators, and 435 members of Congress. It seems like a lot, but in reality, compared to the amount of people that there are in the government, we're dealing with a really, really tiny population of that that has a specific set of duties. So that's going to lead into our next guiding question, which is, how does it work? So... Let's just look at what Congress actually does and how things function. And I'm going to put in some examples to hopefully help you get a clear picture of this. But for all of the examples that we're going through, whenever I'm saying congressperson or senator, you can picture whatever congressperson or senator you are most familiar with. You can even Google it right now and just put a face to the name and understand a key concept for this unit is that Congress is made up of individuals, right? So we want to avoid that type of Congress did this, Congress did that style of explanation. Because what it does is it makes it seem like things in the government merely happen. Thing A happens, then thing B happens, then thing C happens. And what does this do? Is it takes your role out of it. Because in reality, Congress is made up of 535 people who were elected who have to answer to the people who elect them. So when we say Congress did this or Congress did that, it's no longer a conversation. We want to make sure that we're treating this like a conversation because it is. So Congress has two chambers, the lower chamber called the House of Representatives and the upper chamber called the U.S. Senate. This is something that we call a bicameral setup. Cameral is literally just an old word for chamber, bi meaning two. So that term is not necessarily important to know, but you might have heard it in your history classes at some point. The two houses operate in many ways very similarly, but they do have distinctions. So the first major distinction is that they are elected differently. For the House of Representatives, each state is divided into a certain amount of congressional districts depending on its population. For example, New York State has 27 congressional districts, while Arizona has nine. It's about one congressional district 
per 800,000 people. So we split up the states and cut it into areas that 800,000 people live in. In a state like Montana, 800,000 people are a lot more spread out than they are in a state like New York. So every state has a different map for their congressional districts. The people inside a specific congressional district are the only ones who vote for that congressperson. So if I am in Connecticut and we have five congressional districts there, only the people in District 1 are voting for who is going to be congressperson 1. Only the person, only the people in District 2 are voting for who will be congressperson 2. This is something that you might notice when you're looking on social media or listening to the news, that people will be referred to as the congressperson from New York's sixth or the congressperson from Arizona's second. That's how it's traditionally pronounced. On social media, the way that you would recognize it is usually it is the person's name and then either a D or an R for which political party they're in, followed by their state and a number. So that is a shorthand way of referring to all the different representations that somebody has, their party affiliation, their state, and their district. House elections happen every two years for two-year terms. So on every even-numbered year, we re-elect all 435 members of the House. A lot of people run for re-election several times, so they're in the House of Representatives for much more than two years, but they have to keep being re-elected. The Senate, meanwhile, has a slightly different procedure. So the Senate has two representatives from every state. No matter if it is a massive state or a tiny state, it gets two senators. And everyone in the state votes for who the senators are going to be. So there's no districts for this. The Senate elections are also every two years, but they're on a rotating basis. So in any even-numbered year, one-third of the Senate is up for re-election each cycle. And they serve six-year terms. So we deal with one... One third is 33 or 34 senators every two years. We call this system staggered terms in the same way that a restaurant manager might stagger shifts in order to ensure that not all of the employees are arriving or leaving at the same time. The Senate is designed to allow new people to get in, but also to maintain a higher degree of consistency and continuity than the House of Representatives does. We'll talk more about why the two houses are separate and why some of these differences came about in next week's lesson when we look at historical examples. But basically know that either house is elected directly by the people in the state are voting for who is going to represent them. So now that we know how we end up with Congress people, what is it that they actually do? Going back to our what's this term, we know that Congress is the legislative branch of the U.S. government and is responsible for making laws and controlling the budget. What we're going to do each week is add on to this sentence a little bit so you can understand all of the tiny pieces of it. So let's look first at legislative branch. That's the first term we have after Congress in this sentence. When we say legislative branch, there's two key ideas that I want you to take away from here. The first is legislative. This literally means that it constructs the laws. Think of the word legal, which we use to refer to whether or not something is in accordance with the law. Legislative, legislature, legislator all come from that same root. So it's a big word that we use to describe something fairly simple, so don't be intimidated by that. Second is branch. What do I mean when I say a branch of the government? 
At the U.S. federal government level, we have three branches, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive branch, which you might know more commonly as Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidency. Not only do they serve three different purposes, but very crucially, they have three different sources of power. This is going to be big when we're talking about activism. So when I say that they have three different sources of power, I mean that the only thing that influences who becomes a congressperson is the votes for that congressperson. The only thing that influences who becomes the president is the votes for president. Regardless of who is elected to Congress, it does not change the outcome of who is elected to the presidency. This is two different originations. It means that people who are in Congress do not have to listen to the president in order to be elected, which is a really key idea. And similarly, the president can be elected without necessarily having the support of people who are running for Congress. So that's our first two sources of power. The courts have a different source of power, which is the U.S. Constitution. It's a little bit of an abstract concept, but I want you right now to picture it as three silos. So each branch has its own responsibilities and its own abilities. And while they work together and often attempt to achieve similar goals, we want to look at this in terms of strategy later. For example, if you want to make plans with one of your friends and they want to go see a movie late at night, one of your parents may be the one whose permission you need to stay out late. But the other parent might be the one who you need to ask for the money to go to the movies. Sometimes you need approval from only one. For example, if you wanted to go to the movies but during the day, it would be a non-issue for the first parent. Or sometimes you only need approval from the other. For example, you want to hang out late at night, but it doesn't cost any money. But sometimes you need approval from both. The government is very similar, and when we talk about activism, we're going to look at where we want to focus our resources, because some issues require targeting across different branches of the government, but some actually can be done in a single location. I also want to take this time to point out the difference between the federal structures that we're talking about and the state ones, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Basically, the pattern is very similar in that you have at the federal level, a president, the U.S. Congress, and the Supreme Court. And then at a state level, you usually have a governor, a state Congress, and then a state court. So the model is the same, but on most issues, the jurisdiction falls to the federal government. So it's almost like Russian nesting dolls, that all the way down to a city council, you always generally have an executive, some type of legislative body, and then a court. And then above that, there's a bigger Congress, a bigger executive body, a bigger court, so on and so forth, until you get up to the state level and then to the federal level. So just know that what we're talking about right now is the federal level, but the concepts can be applied in many other places. So how does this whole law process actually work? Let's use an example where I am the congressman from New York. I have an idea for a law that I want to do. So every law starts as an idea, right? Somebody has to come up with what they actually want to accomplish. When I am elected to Congress, I get placed onto what are called committees. 
Committees are special sections of Congress that have specific purposes. Some big ones are the Budget Committee, which deals with the national budget, the Oversight Committee, which is the investigative body of the House, and the Judiciary Committee, which deals with the interview process for people who are appointed to judge positions. But there are many more committees than this. Every committee in the House of Representatives has a counterpart committee in the Senate. It sounds like a very fancy, complicated system. It is exactly like committees in any organization, whether that is your student council or any type of organization. It's just smaller groups of people for the terms of efficiency have to dig through ideas before we decide that we're going to act on them as a whole body. So I'm going to use the example of a law, but know that the process for a budget approval is very similar. Obviously, just instead of looking at a particular issue, they are looking at the finances. But the procedure that we're about to discuss is the same for both. So I, as this hypothetical congressperson, will say that I am on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. I have an idea for a new law that has to do with getting more bridges repaired nationwide. I bring this to transportation and infrastructure, which might have, say, 12 members in it. In our committee meeting, we discuss it and we decide that this is a good enough idea that the entire House should vote on it. This is called passing committee. It means that the group of Congress people that are specifically assigned to this issue have approved or at least set forward this legislation to be something for the entire House to deliberate on. When we send it to the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, again, who is currently Nancy Pelosi, decides which bills will be voted on by the entire House because Congress is coming up at all times with a simply massive amount of legislation. So they cannot vote on all of it. So some of it never makes it out of committee, i.e. we never get the ideas even being approved by that smaller group of people. And then additionally, some bills just never get voted on. This can be for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about when we get to the activism unit. But for the sake of our example, let's say that the Speaker of the House decides that this is going to be a piece of legislation that we are going to vote on. The entire lower chamber, the House of Representatives, then votes on the bill. There are 435 members, and it needs a simple majority of 218 votes to pass. You'll hear me a lot throughout this semester use the term simple majority. We say this when we're looking at government, just to be clear, because some things in the government actually require a two-thirds majority or other types of numbers. So when we say simple majority, we mean 51%. You know, exactly one more than half is enough to pass the bill. So if the bill passes in the House of Representatives, this process then starts over in the Senate where it goes through the corresponding committee in the Senate, and then rather than the Speaker of the House deciding if it gets a vote, since her jurisdiction is just in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, the Senate Majority Leader decides which bills get voted on. In the Senate, you need a simple majority again, which out of 100 senators means that it needs 51 to pass. If it is passed in both the House and the Senate, then it goes to a special joint committee between the two houses to work out any differences in wording, because sometimes the versions that they pass might actually be slightly different from one another. So once they have everything finalized, it goes back to both houses and they vote on the final version. If it 
passes again, and this is usually the vote that you see talked about. Oh, either the bill passed or the bill failed. The one that they're talking about because it's gone through several votes already, but the one that usually is paid attention to is this final, we know exactly what the bill looks like vote. Although sometimes, depending on the issue being discussed, you will hear reports about these earlier stages while we watch what the bill is going to become. That was a big thing with the relief package is everyone was watching the different versions they were voting on and we wanted to see which way it was changing and how it was becoming. But once both houses have passed the finalized version of the bill, it, as the expression goes, goes to the president's desk. The president then has three options, sign it, veto it, or wait. If the president signs the bill, it goes into law. Easy. If the president vetoes, it goes back to Congress, where both houses have to pass it with a two-thirds majority in order to override the veto. So in the Senate, this means 66 senators. In the House of Representatives, I can't do that math in my head, but it needs two-thirds of 435 people. And then if they pass it again, then it's considered a veto-proof majority. It means that it still becomes law even without the president agreeing with it. But then we also have this third option, which is to wait. When a bill goes to the president's desk, they have 10 days to respond to it. If the president does not respond by either signing or vetoing in 10 days, then it passes into law without the president's signature. This is a tactic used by many presidents if there is a piece of legislation that they know has a veto-proof majority. They know that they would get overridden, but they do not agree with it. So rather than go through the process of issuing a veto and being defeated, they simply allow it to become the law without their formal approval because they know that they have already lost the battle on this particular issue. So again, this is the process that I've discussed in terms of a specific issue law that we wanted to pass. But when it comes to the decisions of the budget, it happens in the same way. So they deliberate. It still has to go through the same process of passing both houses, going through committees, etc. So now that we have a better idea of what Congress is actually doing, how they actually take their ideas and make them into reality, we're going to do our closing activity for today. So what I want you to do is get out a pen and paper or a note-taking app. And this is going to be an activity to help build all of these concepts that we've just discussed into something real. The focus in your mind right now should be on any individual congressperson going through the process that I just described. It can be one that you know, can be one that you looked up earlier and you've just decided you're gonna use them as your example, but it will be easier for you to think about all these things when you think about them at this kind of individual human level, that it's a person going through a process to push their issue, to try to get it to pass into law. It's not just one massive group of people doing things all willy-nilly. It's very procedural. So this activity is very easy and there's no need for any stress about it. You're going to have wrong answers. I'm telling you that now. It's totally okay. That's the point of the activity is that there's going to be some wrong answers in there. This activity is called Congress Off. So what we're going to do is I'm going to set a timer for three minutes. 
And I want you to write down as many Congress people as you can think of. They can be people who are in Congress right now. They can be people who were in Congress a couple years ago. They can be people who you remember from your history class that are in Congress. And at the end, we're going to go through and actually cross off the names on the list that are somebody else in the government. Now, for all of you eager folks out there, there are some people who are in different positions now that used to be in Congress. So if you want to use one of those answers, that's fine, but be sure to write the title that they actually used to have. So for example, writing Barack Obama would be incorrect, but writing Senator Barack Obama would be correct because that was his role before he was the president when he was in Congress. So the time is going to start in just a second. Write down as many as you can. If it's not a lot, that's okay. And at the end, I'll tell you where you can go to check your list. So go ahead and take three minutes now.
Great, that's three minutes. So now, with your list in front of you, I'm going to give you a website that you can go to that is a really, really cool documentation of everyone who has been in Congress, where they were elected from, when they served. It's also just really fun to play around with. If you're interested in this type of stuff, you can look at people from your state. There's all sorts of cool info. But for now, you can just use it to check your list and make sure that everyone on it was actually in Congress. So that website is GovTrack, G-O-V-T-R-A-C-K dot U-S forward slash Congress forward slash members forward slash all. So take some time now to pause this and check your list. Just cross off anybody who wasn't a correct answer and then look back at your list on the end and use that as your starting place for thinking about the people who have gone through the processes that we talked about today. So these are people who came up with the ideas, brought them to committees, had them voted on by the entire House, by the Senate, and sent bills to the president's desk. Using this view will be much easier as we progress through the rest of this module and look at other things that Congress engages with, especially when we're talking about the historic and modern examples, and double especially when we get to activism. That is all for today's content. I'm going to leave you with two optional activism activities that you can do if you're more interested in today's lesson. The first is to look at your local newspaper and look in the government or news section and see what they say about the United States Congress. Are they reporting on it? Is what the government is doing being chalked up to Congress, even if it's not what we talked about today that they actually do? See how many levels you have to go up to actually find an article about Congress. Maybe your city newspaper isn't saying that much, but your state newspaper is. You can look on their website or if you want to use the physical paper, but I just want you to look at an article critically and think about the way that they're discussing Congress and does it match up with the way that we talked about today as far as Congress actually works? Do they make it sound really fast and easy? Do they make it seem like everyone is in agreement or like it's just two big sides? Look at it with that lens and think for a second about how you would report on the same issue, how you would talk about what's going on in Congress, keeping in mind everything that we looked at today. And the second activity that you can do is very simple, is to have a conversation with your parents or other adults about Congress. And similar to the newspaper activity, listen and see if the way that people talk about Congress is in line with how we just learned it actually works. You might be very surprised to find that a lot of what people say Congress is doing is not related to Congress at all, or at least is not primarily the decision of Congress. Because while there are a massive number of issues in Congress at any given time, it's not always the case that Congress is the one who's really making the decision about what's going to happen about it, right? So even though the pandemic relief plan is something that had to pass through Congress, the president's input, the input of governors, the input of scientists, all were massive pieces of that. So it was not just simply Congress blindly making its own choice. It's a very collaborative process. So have a conversation with a parent or another adult and see what you perceive about the way that we all tend to talk about Congress. It's not, it's not something that is specific to any group of people. It's something that we as a country do that we can all try to be a little bit better about. And I hope after today you feel a little bit 
more comfortable being a little bit better about. I hope that after today, you think that you can explain to somebody more what Congress is doing. I encourage you to rewind this if there's any parts that were unclear to you. And I look really forward to seeing you all next week for another lesson on the historical example actions of Congress. Have a fantastic week, and you can follow us on all of our social media for more updates. Thanks so much.